The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Well, open your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 15. John chapter 15. We're continuing in our study of these chapters from 13 through 17, the upper room discourse or the final discourse or the farewell discourse as it's known by so many. We've made our way into the middle of chapter 15 and let's read the verses. Let me read those to just set them in our minds so that we can put our attention on them and discover their meaning. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 12. Jesus is speaking, and he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all things that I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. You would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. One of the most interesting parts of studying histories and biographies, and I, I got to admit, I am, I am painfully sold out to reading biographies. I love reading biographies, especially of those who are of a bygone generation. I love historical theology in biographical form. One of the interesting things you read of men and women who have died and their death is recorded is how they died how they acted when they knew death was coming, if they did, and what they said before their death, if they uttered last words. This is especially true when these great men and women of the faith knew that their death was impending. What would they say in the face of eternity? How would they address those who were in their hearing from the front porch of heaven? Well, some approach death with peace and calmness, those who don't know Christ, others with, they would approach it with death, uh, dread, and terror, but most universally are concerned with the event of dying. I think we could all identify with that. If you knew you had an hour to live, you would no doubt be thinking about your dying. We've been studying here at Mission Road for the last few months, John 13 through 17, which is Jesus' final words. This is him on his deathbed, as it were. In just a few hours, he's going to be crucified, killed, and buried. It began in the upper room where he washed the disciples' feet and turned their understanding of spiritual influence and leadership upside down and said, no, true spiritual leadership is not how much you know, it's not how much you lead, it's all how much you serve. Then he began instructing them. Then he looked Judas straight in the eye and said, go do what you've conspired to do. Judas leaves the room. Then he has some special instruction, including love one another to the 11 who are left. 
And then they get up at the end of chapter 14. He says, get up, let us go from here. And they move from that upper room, which would have been on the south and western side of Jerusalem. They cross through the inner streets and begin making their way down the bank, down the ridge on the eastern slope of the Temple Mount. Now, the reason we know that is because when you get into chapter 18, we find out that they cross over the Kidron Valley, which is at the bottom. So what he says after chapter 14 and before chapter 18 happens in that space. And the fact that he he goes right into the parable of the vine and the branches gives us an indication he was probably on that slope that fell off of the Temple Mount because that was full of vineyards. He continues teaching them about fruit bearing and love and identification. And in the next section, which we'll look at next week, he talks about their identification with one another in reference to being persecuted and conspired against in the world. What we find here, though, is Jesus facing his impending death hours away from it, maybe inside an hour from being down at the bottom where he would go into the Garden of Gethsemane and sweat great drops of blood, but very close to his arrest, his beatings, his flogging, and his crucifixion. And in no paragraph and in no sentence and in no section of these final words in John, who's the only one who records this section, or in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, do we find one evidence of his concern about himself. Now just put yourself in his sandals for a minute there. Wear his toga for a second. If you knew you were about to die, would you not have great concern about that? Jesus was not concerned about his death because he knew how to live. But he was concerned about the disciples' life because he knew they were going to die. He's articulated to these men over and over that this is it. This is the final. He even told them specifically, I'm going to be arrested. I mean, drawing a box. Here you go, guys. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be arrested by the scribes and the chief priests, by the Jews. I'm going to be tried over and over. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be killed. And I'm going to rise from the dead. And they said, oh, that's great. Now, where do we get to sit in the kingdom? They missed the entire point. They're rudely going to be awakened to that point here. In just a few hours. He's just conversed with them. Sent off Judas to begin the process of the conspiracy for his arrest. And things are about to happen quickly. Things are about to get very ugly. Yet, as we look at these last words of Jesus, his response to his impending death and the horrors that were about to be be thrust upon him... uh, It's striking. He says almost nothing about himself. His intention is entirely on these men. The instruction he gave these men was so important that John gave us a detailed account of it because the instruction he gave them also is something we're supposed to eavesdrop on. This is instruction on how to live life with Jesus without Jesus. How do you live with an invisible Savior? What are these men supposed to do when Jesus is gone? How do they live life then? This entire discourse is perfectly articulated to address that answer. He's preparing his men for what they will face after he leaves them. His chief concern 
was that they know what they need to know to live how they need to live when his physical presence is gone. And that's exactly what you and I need, isn't it? Isn't, a lot, isn't Christian life really about learning how to live with an invisible Savior? One of the most interesting themes that the Lord cycles over and over through this narrative is the importance of these men and Christians throughout the generations to have a genuine, authentic, acted out, and enjoyed love for one another. He's not distracted by what he's going to experience. He's not distracted by what he knows Judas is doing. I mean, he's on that slope of the valley knowing that Judas is a few hundred yards away, turning him in to have him arrested. Not distracted by any of that, but he continues to focus on the needs of these men. This is the greatest example of love that he's going to command us to have. So as we look at these verses, we're going to look at the extent of Christian love, the intimacy of Christian love, and the origin of Christian love. And I want to confess before we get into this that we're going to need some floaties because we are going to be thrown by the Lord into the deep end of the pool. We are going to be looking at mysteries that should take eons to unpack and deal with. But Jesus just says them matter of fact and leaves the explanation to us today. Let's look first of all at the extent of Christian love, the extent. Verse 12 says, this is my commandment that... You love one another. He's already told them that in chapter 13 and 14, that you have to have love for one or the other. This is my commandment. Then he gives this little caveat, just as I also have loved you. In the description, greater love, here's the extent, has no one than this. Then what? That he lay down his life for his friends. Jesus and his men are approaching the bottom of that Kidron Valley going across to the olive groves. He returns to this theme again of loving one another, loving one another. Here's what's interesting. There are sections of this discourse that are about reaching the world and evangelizing the world, and that's important. But the mere emphasis that Jesus puts on this issue even transcends evangelism. And you say, well, that's conflicting. No, no, they go hand in glove because he says they, unbelievers, will know that you love me when? When you love them? That's not what he says. They will know your evangelism will be complete when they, have, they know that you have love for who? One another. Why would any unbeliever want to be evangelized and come into a church where we hate each other? They ought to look in a body of believers and say, Wow, what is happening in those relationships is so attractive. What makes them that way? Jesus says, it's the gospel. Yes, the evangelism is emphasized, but not at the expense of body life and love. In fact, body life and love is the foundation on which evangelism rests. Now again, this is very familiar territory in the Lord's instruction. He repeats over and over the command to love, and it highlights its importance, and the importance of loving other brothers and sisters cannot be overstated. He doesn't say here, just love everyone. Yes, he'll say in another place, love your enemies, but not here, not in his final discourse. That's for another time, that's for the evangelistic focus, but right now he says, men, look around, love one Another. Now, we have to assume some things in there. If that was easy, he would not have commanded them to do that, would he? It's obviously going to strain at who they are. We'd already seen just three days before this 
that at least three of these men were arguing and debating and heated and their discussion rising to, to, to yelling. He had to quiet them on who was going to sit where when Jesus sits on the throne. They were stepping on each other's heads for prominence. They weren't walking down this hill thinking, you know, we are one in the spirit. We are one in the Lord. Let's just sing kumbaya. They were thinking, you know, when he gets there, I want to be close so that I'm in the best spot. They're still wrestling with this. That's why Jesus, in the very beginning of this, gives them an example. He says, wash each other's feet. Leadership is service. Leadership is serving. Here it is, plain and simple. To claim to be a Christian without loving other believers is hypocrisy, it's pretending, and it's delusion, according to the Lord. No matter what we believe, J.C. Ryle, who I have to confess, I, I read J.C. Ryle every week, and, and you just want to quote like pages and pages of J.C. Ryle. This is what he says about that. This stings me. He says it so clearly. He that supposes he is right in the sight of God because his doctrinal views are correct while he is unloving in his temper and sharp and cross and snappish. I love that old word, snappish. I guess it just means you snap at people. Snappish and ill-natured in the use of his tongue exhibits wretched ignorance of the first principles of the Christian gospel. This crossfulness, spitefulness, jealousy, maliciousness, and general disagreeableness of many high professors of sound doctrine are a positive scandal to Christianity. Where there is little love, there can be little grace, end quote. The command to love one another is penetrating, but it's not just love one another. Jesus goes further than that. Love one another, what? Just as I have loved you. That's a game-changing statement. Wait a minute, I'm supposed to love these rascal guys around me. I'm supposed to love people who are, let's face it, unlovely and unlovable. We all know it. You know that person, it may be in the church parking lot, it may be in the church foyer, it may be in the grocery store, it may be at the church picnic, and they start walking toward you, and you think, where can I be besides here right now? And just remember that we are far worse than that in the sight of God. And he died for us. The source here is incredible. The example, rather. Just as I have loved you. This provides the source and the model for our love for one another. The lessons are penetratingly deep, and they extend deeply into John himself. Now, we've got to take a quick tour if we can. I want you to go over to 1 John for a minute. Because this instruction had an obvious and deep and abiding impact on John. So that when he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he couldn't let go of this instruction. He couldn't let go of this theme. We'll look at some of this now and we'll come back to another section of it here in a few minutes. 1st John chapter 3, verse 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's exactly what he says. Greater love is no man than, he, than that he lay his life down for his friends. We're going to come back and look at that in a minute because I'm not, I'm not going to contradict Jesus, but the Apostles Paul says that's the greatest love that can exist between Christians. 
But God manifests a love even more deep in Romans chapter 5. We'll come back to that. 1 John chapter 3, verse 23. This is his commandment. Remember, Jesus said, this is my commandment. What's John going to say? That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and what? Love one another. How? Just as he commanded us. How did he command us? To love like he loves. John 13, 34. We can go back to the um, book of John now, and you can find yourself to 15, but this is a recycled uh, argument that Jesus is giving a new commandment. I give you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And in fifteen seventeen, he says, I command you that you love one another. I command you. This is not optional Christian behavior. Notice that it's loving one another. Yes, we should extend love to unbelievers. That's for another passage. This one though is in the pews, guys. This is for us. Love one another. Love other believers. Please notice, the first time he says love one another, it's actually after Judas leaves the room. I won't ask you to go back there, but in 2 John chapter 5, he says, Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have heard from the beginning, that we love one another. John could never shake this. And it's, there's a unique part of 1 John we're going to come to in a few minutes where you're going to see exactly how this bloomed full blossom in his thinking, in his mind. Now, back to that phrase in John 15, greater love has no man than this. Please notice that the context here is greater love has no man than this in the context of brothers and believers. He's talking specifically about his example in loving them. What was his example? Well, we have so much here. We have the gospel here. We have the sacrificial, substitutionary atonement of Christ on behalf of sinners in this little phrase, I laid my life down for my friends. The way of love is patterned for us. It's sacrificial. It's painful. It's costly. But we can't talk about this without taking a peek at Romans chapter 5. I want you to put these. These are, these are good actual um, cross-references to write in both margins of these two texts. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still helpless. Now when you see the multiple layers of Christ's love, yes, he loves us as brothers. We're to love others like that. But before he loved us as brothers, you recognize he loved us as enemies, right? For while we were still helpless, we get a lot of names called at us in this passage. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So, so far we're helpless and ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were so lovely, is that what it says? While we were so attractive, while we were the people he wanted to be all stars in the kingdom, while we were yet, what is it? Sinners. Christ died for us. Now look at the beautiful spectrum of this. Jesus talking to his disciples who were, this gets a little odd, already saved in an Old Testament sense, but were about to be saved in a New Testament sense in a few days. They were right at that hinge. 
He says to them who are already, I think we can assume at this point that these 11 have, have some sort of spiritual conversion. They were experiencing the, the new birth in the Old Testament and the new birth after the resurrection. And that'll be fun conversations to talk to the Lord and even to them about the theology of that. But even in that, sinners are first loved as enemies by Christ before they're loved as friends by Christ. God, God loves differently than us. In fact, he says, ah, you know, if there's a righteous man, someone may dive on a grenade in a war and save his friends. That's, that's a noble act, and it is. God did that for his enemies, not his friends. Sinners, helpless. Much more than verse 9 says, having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, there's another name, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And not only this, but we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the reconciliation. The point is that Jesus' self-sacrificing, atoning death is the pattern for us to love our brothers and, yes, to have love for our enemies. But again, we'll get there in chapter 16. That's another passage. Right now, the focus is on loving the bride, loving the body. Remember what he said in chapter 13, verse 15. I give you an example that you also should do as I did. In other words, the way I love is sacrificial. It's not top down. Christian love involves sacrifice and risk and vulnerability. Listen, this is really, really critical. If you're going to apply Christ's command to love, you are going to be hurt. You're going to experience trials. You're not going to be loved back all the time. It's risky. But it's like Christ in that, as we'll see in a minute, it's one way. It's given to give, not to expect to receive. That's true in evangelism, but it's also true in the church. Why? Because the nature of love is to give. That's what it means here. Greater love is no one that he gives. Gives what? His ultimate gift, his life. Receiving is never guaranteed. So what does this love look like? What does this love look like? We have to turn for a moment over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You know this, but this is the place where we take a little footnote on the great love chapter. Okay, if I'm going to love people in the body, what does that look like? This is agape. This is a decisional love. This is not a, an emotional love. There are other Greek words for that. This is a commitment. This is a, a decision that you make. You guys know 1 Corinthians 13 very well. But look at the contrast here. Verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I do not have love, if I have the showiest gift in the church, if I am the celebrity in the body, but I do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, unintelligible, racket-making, unhelpful, ear-piercing. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all the mysteries of all knowledge, if I am an expert theologian and know all the mysteries of the gospel, but I have all faith to remove mountains, but I do not have love, guess what? I am, what does it say? Nothing. You're not a great theologian. I'm not a great thinker if I know all this stuff and I don't exhibit love. 
And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, I'm a martyr. I give everything away, and then I'm burned for the cause of Christ. But I do not have love. It profits me what? Nothing. And so by this point, you're going, then what is this love? If that's true, I got to know what that means. Okay, here it is. Love is patient. You know what that means? Love has the ability to be wronged and abused and doesn't retaliate. You say, does that happen in the church? Do I really need to answer that question? Love is kind. One is the patient is the is receiving wrong and responding right. Kindness is extending God's love, extending kindness. It's it's a decision to be made. It's making people's life better because they know you and you know the Lord. Love is not jealous. Usually we use this in a romantic sense. This has nothing, I'm sorry, this has nothing to do with romance here. This is talking about body life. These Corinthians are devouring one another, not trying to get married. He's talking about how to get along. It's not jealous. You're not jealous of someone else's gifts, someone else's influence, someone else's friendships and relationships. Love doesn't brag. We all boast and we all brag. That's why Jeremiah said, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his strength. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this. He doesn't say, if you boast. He says, you're going to boast. So when you do, boast in this, that you understand and know God. And it's not arrogant. It's not proud. It's not prideful. Okay, can we have a little conversation just man to man and pastor to flock? We are all incredibly and incurably proud. Oh, it manifests itself differently. Some people manifest it in feeling sorry for themselves. Feeling sorry for ourselves is just pride in the, in the mind of the weak. Avert arrogance is pride in the mind of the strong. When, when you say, oh, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, I think I should eat some worms, what you're saying is nobody loves me as much as I love me, and I wish they would join me in the love of me. It's a wonderful place to be. Where is Michael? <laughs> that was the worst time to amen in the history of preaching. <laughs> but I agree with the point. I'm with you. I'm tracking with you. <laughs> Doesn't brag. It's not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. You know, what the, the word unbecomingly means it's not rude. That's an interesting thing to put in here. It's not rude to one another. Can Christians be rude to one another? It does not seek its own. Greater love has no man than this. He lays down his life. It's not self-centered. It's not about us. It's about others. It's not provoked. I love this. You can't pick a fight with it. Have you ever known someone who's so godly you try to get into an argument and they just smile and say, oh, no, we disagree. You know, no, I want an argument. No, yeah, I'll pray for you. I don't want to pray. I want to fight. And then this next one, this is an interesting phrase in the Greek. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. Literally, it doesn't make chicken scratches for wrongs. It doesn't have a list of things you've done wrong. 
can you say ouch? Don't we have a running list with some people? Oh, yeah, I remember that. I remember when they said, oh, I forgave them, but what is the, what comes after that? What, but what? Doesn't keep a record. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness. In other words, when people are sinning, it doesn't laugh at it, it doesn't rejoice in it, it doesn't rejoice with it, it doesn't enjoy jumping in with them, but it rejoices with what? The truth. A true loving church is a biblical church that loves the word and the word finds love manifest through them. This kind of love, by the way, bears all things. You can't break its bond. It believes all things. It will die thinking the best of other people. It hopes all things. Even when it sees the worst, it hopes the best. And you know what? It endures all things. You understand why this is in the context of the church? If our love endures all things, no unbeliever should come into our fellowship and say, wow, they don't get along. They should say they have issues and love each other through those issues. This kind of love, verse 8, never fails. Literally, it never goes away. And then he goes right into a section which convinces me of why I am a cessationist on why certain gifts do go away. This love does not go away. So, if we were to put that to a test and put that list in your life, here's what you would say, no doubt, because this is what I would say. Oh, I'm doing excellent in some of those categories with a lot of people. I mean, I'm loving this person just like that, that person just like that, this person not so much, but this person, I mean, I... The question is, are we moving toward that kind of love within the body progressively every day and recognizing when we fail in these categories? Now, here's my challenge. I'm one-fourth through with my notes. So I'm thinking right now about what we're going to do. And we're going to do one more point, okay? You were hoping otherwise. I saw I'm not looking at you. No eye contact. <laughs> Let's go back and look, pick up verses 14 and 15. And that's fine because the next few verses are all about God's sovereignty and election, and I can't do that at the end of a sermon. So uh, we'll, we'll pull the car over there. Secondly, we're going to look at the intimacy, the intimacy of Christian love, not just the extent, but the intimacy. This is verses 14 and 15. You are my friends. It's just, you have to stop right there. This was a different kind of relationship than they had ever experienced with the Lord. How do we know that? Look what he says. You're my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you slaves. That's what their relationship had been like before. He'd only called them friends one other time in Luke. And that was an endearing, instructive moment. But now he says, you are my friends. If, if, circle it, if you do what I command you, you want lordship salvation in the Bible, there it is. No longer do I call you slaves. Our relationship is going to expand. It's going to change. For the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all things that I have heard from the Father, my Father, I have made known to you. We find out something about ancient Near Eastern slavery from this text. And that was that the slave typically was an employee, a worker. He knew what he was doing day to day, but he never knew what he was doing, why he was doing, and his, his master could be absolutely arbitrary, and he wouldn't know why. 
The slave had no appeal. The slave had no way to talk. The slave didn't eat the same food, didn't eat the same table. He was there only to be commanded what to do because he didn't know what the master was thinking. I know what you're thinking. Well, I rarely know what my boss is thinking. That may be a parallel, but we're going to talk about that later when we talk about jobs. Jesus says, you know, the the fundamental relationship between a landowner or a, a master and the slaves is he's doing commerce, he's trading, he may sell the field that you're working in, you won't even know until tomorrow and you don't have a job. He's absolutely in sovereign control and you don't have a clue what's going on. He says, you know what? Our relationship has evolved and changed into something very different. I've actually told you what I know. You know the Father's mind. You know the Father's will. You know the Father's identity. If you've seen me, you've actually seen the Father. He says, I'm your friend. A friend is now a confidant, a companion, a person who shares the joys and sorrows of life with you and you with them. And this marks a significant, here's the important, expansion in their relationship. It's not a change in their relationship. You say, what what do you mean by that? He doesn't stop being the Lord. But he does add to his lordship our friendship. He expands from just being slaves to being friends. He's not interested in having a relationship with his disciples, and he's not interested in having a relationship with you and me that is based only on Obedience. Obedience is critical. Obedience is at the top of the list of manifestation, but there has to be a genuine friendship and affection for who Jesus is. Listen, we didn't become Christians to follow a rule book, did we? We became Christians to get the pleasure of the Holy Spirit, which is the promise that one day we will see him as he is face to face. Friendship is deep. It's relational. However, friendship with Jesus, go back to verse 14, does involve and include obedience. That's a conditional clause in verse 14. You're my friend if you do what I command. Now, don't don't reverse the equation. You don't do what Jesus commands, and then he'll become your friend. Because he's extended friendship and salvation, we do what he commands. You, You can't do anything to get saved You do anything because you are saved. You can't put the cart before the horse. Loving Christ means obeying Christ. Obeying him means loving our brothers. And not loving our brothers is indicative of not knowing Christ. Very simple. Jesus is saying that a person who claims Christ, Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians 13 to 14 and 15. He says a person who doesn't love their brother may say they know Christ, But if you don't love the body and the unlovable parts of the body, you are a loud symbol and a clanging gong. Your theology means nothing, Paul says. Please don't get me wrong. I love theology. I love theology. But I got to confess, am I as aggressive about finding people who need to be cared for, loved, extended pastoral care, not from the pastor, but caring, shepherding care, which all of us can extend. Is that the driving passion of church? Here's what happens. It's way easier for us to come and to meet and agree to each other and to leave than to love each other. You say, well, that sounds pretty loving. 
I actually gave a hug today. I received a hug today. Um, you know, Ben Hyman hugged me, and, and I almost suffocated. I mean, what, you, what, what does this mean? No, no, it's all about meeting, but the meeting should launch us into a seven-day-a-week care and love for one another by knowing what's going on in each other's lives, by praying for each other, by, pray, by following up with each other, by caring for each other. And remember, it's costly, it's uncomfortable, it's sacrificial, it's a pain. But remember that that's the way people are going to have to sacrifice when they love you and me as well. Isn't it good when God calls us, enables us, and supplies the grace for us to die to self. That's what it takes to love one another. Now, where does all of this love come from? You know what it comes from? The elective power and the predestination of God. And we are going to have to push pause here to come and deal with that issue next week. And God's kindness and providence, that's, that, that deserves its own attention. He says, I didn't choo- you didn't choose me, but I chose you. And then uh, he supplies in the rest of chapter 16 reasons of his choice that, uh, that are going to be simply amazing. I think we'll come next week and look at our salvation and say, not how could he elect some and how could he not elect others. We should look at our salvation and say, why would he elect me? If you... Uh, if you know Christ... This should be an encouragement to all of us. But I'm not a fool. We, we have probably some people who are casually coming to our church who may not know Christ as Lord and Savior. We have some who may have sat in these seats for decades and not know Christ. Obedience reveals a love for Christ. He died for us. He was buried. He rose from the dead. He gives us grace and power to fight sin and to love the unlovely and remind us that we are unlovely ourselves. If you want to know what that means and what, that's, what it means to embrace Christ and to be forgiven of your sins and go to bed with a conscience cleaned by the blood of Jesus, at the end of the service, over to my left, there's a, a room. It's our prayer room until we finish this other one. And uh, there'll be some some folks over there who would love to be able to pray with you, talk to you. You want to find out about joining our church. You want somebody to pray with you. You have a counseling need. Please let us serve you uh, in that prayer room. And at the end of the final song, you can come over and uh, some folks will be over there to meet you. And next week, pray for us. We are going to go into election and predestination next week. And I know what you're thinking. Rick, do you believe that? Well, Jesus did, so we'll see what he said, okay? Let's pray together. Father, we are... um, humbled by the admonition to love in a way that you loved us. How, how can we do that except that you enable us? How can we do that except that you empower us? How or why would we do that unless the gospel was in clear central focus in our lives and our thinking? Rearrange our priorities. Cause us to die to self. Even before we leave this building, give us a love for one another so that the world will look at Mission Road Bible Church and say, the way they respond to each other is amazing and divine. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit Mission Road Bible Church 
www.thepetshop.com. <laughs> 